After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go on to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. What a story. It's quite a strange story, isn't it? Um, and we will get into a little bit of that story in a little bit. But I want to tell you another story to start. Um, a little while ago now, a few years ago, I, um, um, someone came to talk to me after I'd, um, after I'd been given a talk. And, I, and I'd said this thing about God being unchanging and yet constantly changing. And someone came to talk to me going, you know, actually, theologically, I have a bit of an issue with that. I don't, um, you know, God's unchangeable. The Bible's really clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which the Bible is very clear about that. And he said, but there you are saying that God changes, or and God is changeable and constantly changing. And, and what do you mean by that? Because I don't agree with that. I don't think God changes. And I was like, well, actually, I think God is always changing. Because whilst God is unchangeable, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is constant in that sense eternal in that sense i said i also believe that god is constantly changing because relationship demands it you see we can't be in relationship with someone who never changes because relationship demands change it demands interactions it demands that we are changed by each other otherwise it's not relationship as so I was saying, well, I've, I believe that we, we're always changing. How God relates to me today is a little bit different than how God relates to me a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. And, and my relationship with God is evolving. How God interacts with us changes all the time. And he said, well, just, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but I just I don't like this idea that God is 
changing and, and unchanging. Can you explain a bit more? And I said, well, there's all these passages in the Bible where God changes his mind. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, in Genesis, we have this story with Abraham where um, God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, yeah, but what if there's 50 people? And God says, okay, if there's 50 people, I won't. And then God, Abraham says, what about 40? And God's like, all right, 40. And then 30, all right, 30. And then 20, and then, all right. 20 and then Abraham pushes his look a bit more goes well all right what about 10 and God's going oh fine all right 10 we'll do 10 then and like and then they try to push it and then God's like don't push it any more than that 10 10's a deal right so and then they like there's this interaction there's this changing and this guy's and this person was like no I know I don't I think God knew what he was doing there well what about Hezekiah Hezekiah this king is told God sends a prophet to him to tell him that he's going to die that he's he served well but his time is done and this and Hezekiah prays and pleads with God for more time and God changes his mind and lets Hezekiah live longer God changes no 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 no, no. God knew that was going to happen that was just that was just all part of it well well then what about the flood what about Noah and the flood I said what do you mean what about Noah and the flood I said well before the flood God is the sort of God that would flood the earth because God floods the earth but after the flood, God sends the rainbow and makes his promise and says, I will never flood the earth again. God is no longer the sort of God that would never flood the earth, that would flood the earth. Now he is the sort of God that would never flood the earth. God has changed. This person was like, oh, yeah, that's a good, yeah, I'm really, yeah, I need to go think about that. And that was, and they went off and they went to think about it for a little bit. Because you see, I believe that God is, God is unchanging and yet God changes. But God changes out of grace. God changes because God fundamentally is a God of relationship. You know, if you want to really pin this down, God isn't a God of religion. God is a God of relationship. And if we have a religion relationship is our religion god is a relational god god is a god who wants to be known who wants to be in relationship with us and so he changes not because he isn't unchanging because god is the same yesterday today and forever and yet how he interacts with us his relationship with us how he reveals himself to us is always changing and so god changes in this situation with Noah, in this covenant with Noah, because he, because of relationship, because he sees what has happened in this, as he's flooded the earth, he goes, I am never going to do that again. Because who you are, our relationship with each other is so important, I'm never going to bring that destruction again. Now, I actually think there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on there, and we will get to that in a minute. But I wanted to use that to demonstrate that I think that God is fundamentally relational. And it's really important that we understand this. You see, I think we have this idea of God that he's distant, that he's unchanging, that he's intransigent. And so he's quite severe. This might be a gospel that feels familiar to you but i don't know if you this is a gospel that feels quite familiar to me that um god created the earth and it was all good 
And then we sinned because we ate from the fruit in the tree. And God said, don't eat of this fruit. And if you eat of this fruit, then that's going to be really bad. And we... Like, you know, when you, you know these, science, these experiments that you see with kids sometimes, and they kind of go, they put a kid in a room, and they put a chocolate bar on the table, they go, don't eat that chocolate bar till I'm back. And then they go out on the video. The, like that. That's what God's doing with us in the Garden of Eden, going, oh, don't eat that fruit, and then I'll be back soon. Let's <laughs> see what happens. Basically, we failed. We failed that test. And, they, and, so, and then God's like, well, now you failed that test. That's it. The only consequence of this is eternal punishment the only consequence of this is death i need to punish you but then but actually but that's not the end of the story because god also comes up with a rescue plan a rescue passage a package and so god says oh but that's all right i'm really angry with you and i have to punish you i have to punish you because i'm i am who i am and so i have to punish you and so uh, but sorry and like jesus is going to come and he's going to um die on the cross for you and he's going to pay the price of your sins so if you if you accept jesus then then god anger will be dealt with jesus will get you round that jesus will get you forgiven so you don't have to suffer the the wrath and the anger and the vengeance of god it's all right because you know jesus and that's how we get saved and that might be a very familiar gospel to you but it's quite a contractual relationship isn't it i do this for you and you do this for me if you believe this then you'll be saved but if you don't then god's quite angry in this story god's quite violent in this story and it's not that there isn't truth in the story it's just that it's a bad gospel you know the good news is news that is profoundly good by definition i guess like the good news needs to is so good that we actually need god we actually need the spirit to help us have the faith to believe it that it's so good that god loves us so much that he covers us that he meets us that he goes the extra mile for us that god loves us so much you see sometimes i think our gospel kind of paints this picture of god being quite angry or vengeful or violent but actually what we see in scripture is not this god who's going now i have to punish you but there is a kind of a get out clause we see a god who pursues us we see a god who loves us we see a god who is passionately for us we see a god who meets us again and again and again and again who goes the extra mile again and again and again and again we see a god who wants to go so much further we see a god of love and relationship we get all sorts of images of this like the the prodigal son and the and the the, the son's just on the horizon returning home and the father runs and makes the distance between them the father and, the, and the son's like trying to get out his apology going oh god oh my father i'm really sorry and i shouldn't and goes go no no i'm not even interested in your apologies i just want to embrace you i just want to love you i just want to be with you like we see the image of the father that we get in the scriptures isn't a god that's waiting to punish us or eager to punish us or has to punish us or is angry and violent with the image of god that we get in the scriptures is one a god of love who goes the extra mile who goes above and beyond and this is what covenant tells us you see this contractual idea that we have of god if i do this and you'll do this for me if i obey these rules then you'll save me if i go to church often enough and give often enough and and a nice often enough then then you'll make sure that i get to heaven when i die this sort of contractual idea 
is quite damaging for us. You see, with a contract, an agreement is made to protect oneself. But with a covenant, one commits oneself with promises to another for the sake of the other. You see, a contract is all about protecting me. It's a contract is what we have in business. Or if you've had the nightmare that I've had recently of trying to sort out BT broadband or whatever it might be, that's a contract. Unfortunately, they give you this like 14-day or 28-day out clause because they kind of go, well, if we haven't met our side of the bargain, then you can get out. You can pull back. Or, and that's, those are contracts. But a covenant, a covenant is like a marriage. A covenant says, I'm in this, not just for the betterment of myself or for, for I can get what I want. I am in this for you. I am committed in my marriage. You know, it's not enough for me to just believe that Rachel exists. That isn't going to cut it as a marriage. You go, well, if you believe that I exist, then, you know, then, we'll be, well, then we can be married. No, no, it's not enough for me to believe that she might be nice or she might be... Well, no, no, like actually covenant means that we share life together, that we are in deep relationship with each other, that I am going to commit to pouring myself out for her so she becomes everything that she's created to be. And, and she will pour herself out for me. So I become everything I'm created to be. Our covenant to one another is for the betterment of each other. For the fulfillment of each other. Not just to meet my needs or what I want. Or, and if oh, I don't think you're doing that very well, then I'll start pulling back. And maybe I've got my get out clause. You see, this is why prenuptial agreements are so... So wrong, so destructive. And if you have one of those, I'm really sorry for saying that, but maybe you just need to tear it up. Because, because what they do is they take something which is covenantal, marriage, and they make it contractual. If you do this, I want to make sure that I protect my investment or I protect what I'm putting into this. No, no, we don't get to do that in marriage. Everything I have is yours. Everything I am is for you. That's what covenant is. So contract protects me, but covenant commits me. And we are called into covenant. I read this recently. I thought I'd share it with you. The concept of covenant permeates and largely structures the entire biblical narrative. One could say that the rich variety of linguistic forms found in scripture are all ultimately put in service to one thing, covenant. Covenanting is both the substance and the form of God's characteristic communicative action. All scripture must therefore be understood as covenantal discourse. The whole fabric of scripture, the whole revelation of what God is like is covenant. God giving of himself for the fulfillment of us. God pursuing us for relationship with himself, to see us restored and renewed and become everything that we are created to be. What we see in scripture is, these, is this trajectory of covenants. You see, there are, there are all sorts of covenants in the Bible. 
all sorts of covenants in the Bible. But we'll start with the one I just mentioned earlier, the Noahic covenant. You see, another understanding of what I was talking you know, when I was talking about how actually in Noah, when, when he puts the rainbow up at the end, and it, maybe that's evidence that God has changed. And, it's, and it is. It's evidence that God is relational, that God's going, no, I don't want to be that God. I don't want to be like that anymore. This is the God. I'm, I am the God who will never dis- destroy the earth again. But actually, maybe it's not so much that God has changed. Maybe it's that our understanding of God and what God is like has changed. Maybe that's what's evidence. Because, you see, there are all sorts of flood narratives across all the religions. And it's understood that when, the, um, when this was actually written down in the Hebrew Scriptures, they were, in, um, they were in captivity in Babylon. And the Mesopotamian um, flood narrative was quite a dominant narrative. And, and not dissimilar, like, you know, God was angry and destroyed the earth and whatever. But actually, then there's this story that the Hebrews tell. They go, yeah, okay, but actually this story says that God's not like that anymore. And I think what we see in covenants, what we see in the covenants of Scripture is this kind of narrative of going, you thought God was this way. You thought God was a sort of God that was distant, that would destroy the earth, that was angry, that wanted to punish you, that was a bit petty, that was a bit um, violent. But actually, God is the God who will never flood the earth again god is the sort of god that is for us that will not destroy us god is the sort of god that is on our side that is for us that is always pursuing us and so maybe our understanding of god changes and so this covenant that comes in is god saying look i am for you i'm not going to be the god who destroys you this is the sort of god i'm going to be and there's this new understanding of what god is like from a contractual god do this for me and I'll do this for you. If you obey me, then I'll look after you. To this God, this like, no, no, no matter what, I'm for you. No matter what, I will not destroy you. And then we see the story that we had read at the beginning. The story of Abram. And this story is a really fascinating story. Because what happens here is, is it, this is the sort of covenant that would happen if a king went in and destroyed or... or or took over another people, another tribe, or another nation, then what would happen is the leader of that tribe and the king would meet together, and they would, they would cut these animals in half, and the blood would kind of run into a ditch between the two. And then the king would walk through as a covenant going, I will be your king, and I will protect you, I will look after you, I will be for you, I will, I will keep you safe, I will defend you, I will treat you like one of my tribe like one of my people and if i don't may i be like these animals that have been cut into may my carcass be destroyed and then the leader of the conquered tribe or the king of the conquered nation would walk through the other way and say and we will be your people we will be loyal to you and we will follow you and we will we will fight for you and we will defend you and we will be entirely committed to you and if we're not May my body be like these animals that are separated. And so it's this sort of covenant where they walk through and they make this deep commitment to each other, to be entirely for each other and with each other. But what we see happening in this story is actually Abraham falls into this sleep and what he sees is this, like, this flame and this smoke that's coming out of this firebox passing through. 
both of those are symbols of God. When, when God, we see God on top of the Mount, Mount Sinai with Moses as a cloud of, it's all in a cloud. When we, um, that we, see, we see God being revealed as fire, Moses in the burning bush. And then when they're walking through the wilderness, we see um, they're, they're having a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day that they can follow. God is revealed by fire and by cloud. God is revealed. So both of these symbols reveal God. And what it demonstrates is that God is walking through saying, if... Like, I am actually committed to you. You will be my people. I am committed to these promises I'm making to you. And if I'm not, may my body be broken. May my body be ripped in two. But also, God walks through and covers Abraham's side and goes, and if you are unfaithful, if you don't follow me, if you don't commit to me, if you don't love me, if you don't... Um, if you don't follow my laws and my commands, if you fall short, may my body be broken and may my blood run into the ditch. You see, in this covenant, we see a covenant that is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. We see God saying, I will keep my side of this covenant for this relationship, but I will also keep your side of this covenant in this relationship. We see God saying, not only am I God who is for you, but I am a God who is gracious and merciful. I am a God who doesn't, I am not the God of karma. I am the God who forgives. I am the God of grace. And that's a really powerful image that we have in this God who is for us. Then we see the Mosaic covenant. This Exodus 19, and he says, you will be my people. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. You will be my people. You'll be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The world will see. All the other tribes will see. Everyone will see what I am like by who you are as a nation. And I'll give you this law that I will be with you. I will go with, through the wilderness with you like a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. I will be with you through all of this, and I will be revealed through you. I am the God who is with you. I am the God who is for you. I am God. I am the God of grace. I am the God of mercy i am the god who is revealed through you then we have the davidic covenant so he speaks to david and he says look no longer will be the god who kind of shows up and then disappears and then uh, oh, oh my blessing is with you and then it's not with you a time is coming when I will never leave you. I will always be with you. All the promises I've given you will be fulfilled. And I will be entirely with you because I am entirely faithful. Because I will never leave you. I will always be with you. And then we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In the new covenant that says that God is love and God is within us. A new covenant that is fulfilled by a new command that says the way you love one another is how the world will know that you are my disciples. I will be revealed through you. A new covenant that is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit that now God is within us. God isn't just with us. God isn't just for us. God isn't just a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. God isn't just a God who will never leave us. Now God is sealed within us. We are indwelt by the Spirit. And now our words can bring healing and life now our actions can bring healing and raise the dead to life now our actions and our we can bring miracles and we can bring hope 
Now God is revealed in us, through us, so the whole world can see what God is like. We see this covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. You see, God is not the God of contract and karma. God is the God of covenant and grace. God isn't the God who says, well, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. God is the God who says, no matter what, I am with you. No matter what, I am for you. And I won't just cover my side of this covenant. I will go further. And as far short as you fall, I will cover the distance. Bono, leading with you too, said this about grace and karma. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company. A real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite reaction. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your... In my case, is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. We are invited by this God who wants to be known, by this God who wants to be in relationship. We are invited into relationship. You see... Jesus is the yes of the covenant. And in the same way we saw this in this story that was read for us about Abraham and how God passed through and said, I will be for you and I will be with you. And all the promises that God made weren't all good. He said, there's going to be trouble. Your, your descendants are going to be in slavery it's going to be tough. There's going to be hardship. But through it all, I will be with you. In it all, I will be with you. But I won't just keep my side of this covenant. Because covenant isn't about protecting my interests. Covenant is being all in for you. So wherever you fall short in following me, in obeying me, in worshipping me, in, in, in revealing me to all creation, wherever you fall short, I will cover it. This is the story that we see going on with Jesus. Jesus isn't just God's yes of the covenant. He's our yes of the covenant too. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, it says that um, Jesus is the yes of the covenant, the yes and amen that all God's promises are yes in Jesus. All God's promises are yes in Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit more about covenant. I want to talk a little bit more about what that means for us as a community. But I actually want to pause here for a second because it might be 
it might be that maybe your perception of God was a bit contractual or God was angry or a bit violent or a bit petty or whatever. It might be that this is maybe not the first time or maybe the first time, but maybe you've heard this in a new way today, that God is a God who wants to be in relationship. God is a God who is for us and with us. God is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy. God is a God who will cover our side of the covenant as well as his side of the covenant. God is a God who forgives. God is a God who loves. God is a God who wants to be known. And it might be that it might be that you've never actually taken that step of faith to commit to that relationship. And we want to give you that opportunity this morning. So we want to pause and do that. But also, it might be that you've been a Christian for a long time. But maybe you've kind of slipped into that sort of contractual idea that God's supposed to bless me. God's supposed to make everything all right. And if he doesn't, well, then I'm going to pull back. I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to, I'm just going to keep my distance a little bit. I'm going to, I'm a bit fed up with him, a bit disappointed with him, I'm a bit angry with him. It's all a bit contractual. And maybe there's an opportunity for a number of us to recommit into this covenant. It's God who wants to be known. So we invite him in again. So we're just going to take a little bit of time. We're going to put some slides up with a prayer, which you can follow. Pray the prayer that's on those slides if where that's relevant for you. If you want to take that step, let's be people who respond to the God who pursues us. Let's be people who respond to the God of covenant. commit to that covenant with you. Covenant where we're all in. We don't hold on to our get out clauses or we pull back or we feel that you fall short or disappoint. Lord, we want to thank you that you're a God who loves us, a God who pursues us, a God who is for us, a God who wants to be in relationship with us. 
Lord, we thank you that you're the Father who runs the distance between us. I won't even wait to hear our apologies, but you just embrace us and throw a party. Lord, we just want to turn towards you this morning. We want to give you our yes and amen. 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 So, quickly, I just want to talk a little bit about um, what covenant means for us as a community then. Because if we're followers of Jesus, if we're the body of Christ, if we are the embodiment of what God looks like, and this cannot be done in isolation, this isn't just about us as individuals, but this is about us as community. Jesus said this new covenant is fulfilled by the way and revealed in the way that we love one another. We are committed to each other. We have a fabulous evidence of this, revelation of this, ex- expression of this. In the Last Supper, when Jesus is talking about the new covenant, in communion, and we're going we're gonna to end with communion in just a couple of minutes, because actually this whole thing of communion, and, and Jesus is saying, this is my body, and it's the new covenant. This is my blood that's poured out for you, and it's the new covenant. But he says this, and he does this, and then, and he's with his disciples, and he says, look, the world will know, a new command I give you, that you love one another, and this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. But he says this immediately after he's spoken to Judas and said, you're about to betray me. And Judas walks off to betray him. And then he says it immediately before, he then turns to Peter and says, you're about to betray me three times. So between talking to Jesus about betrayal and talking to Peter about denial, Jesus says, how you love one another, that's how the world's going to know you're my disciples. Which seems a bit odd, doesn't it? You see, we call to this community, not of contract. And I think sometimes as church, we can kind of get into this contractual mindset. Well, I'm, I'm, I like this church because I like the worship or I like the teaching or I like the sense of community or I like what they do in the community or I like whatever it is you like. But then we might get to a point where we go, actually, I don't think I like this church anymore because maybe they, this person might have offended me or oh, the worship's not as good as it used to be or the teaching goes on for too long or whatever it might be. We go, oh, well, I, don't, oh, I think the Spirit's departed. I don't, think, I don't think this is where I'm supposed to be. Well, I'm going to go somewhere else, where, which is better for me. That's a contractual mindset. We don't get to do that. We are here because this is where God's called us to be. I hope you have that sense of calling, that sense of place that sense of belonging this is where god's called us to be regardless of how easy it is regardless of whether it's difficult or not regardless of whether i feel offended or not regardless of whether i feel included or not regardless of whether the worship's good enough or not or the teaching's good enough or not or we do enough in the community or not this is where i'm called to be and so i'm all in I'm all in. We are all in with each other. You see, as the body of Christ, we are called to live in relationship, relationship to God and relationship to each other. We are called to love each other. We are called to be covenant people, deeply committed to each other. This is the life 
that we're called to. This is the community that we're called to. We're called to be in covenant with one another. John Tyson, um, pastor of a church in New York, says this. Let me pull it up for you. Having a covenantal community means we choose accountable unity over loose networks. There can be a utility for loose networks, as LinkedIn has demonstrated, or Facebook, or whatever, WhatsApp, whatever. But a creative minority must be built on the foundation of a close-knit community that is both vulnerable with and committed to one another. In such a community, individuals are not leveraging the network for their own good. They're not just trying to make it work for them, get their own benefit, but rather... We have devoted, they have devoted themselves to the well-being of one another and the betterment of the community in which they live. That's why we're called here. The problem with a loose network is that as soon as there is conflict, as soon as someone upsets us, as soon as we disagree with someone, as soon as we have a theological issue with someone, or there's, a, there's an argument with someone, people withdraw to their private concerns. If there is no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that, are being, that you are being confronted about, you are networking. You are not in close community. Wow. If you're not uncomfortable, if you're not being challenged, this isn't community. This is networking. And so it is a bit uncomfortable. I'm feeling a bit challenged. Maybe I'll withdraw for a bit. We don't get to do that in covenant community. I'll read it again. If there is no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that you are being confronted about, you are networking. You are not in close community. Yet, an accountable community does not just confront. It remains united despite disagreements. It is defined by covenantal loyalty. A covenant is distinct from a contract in that each side agrees to uphold their side of the agreement, whether or not the other is faithful. Each of us agree to be where God has called us to be, to be in relationship with one another, whether or not the, we perceive that the other people around us are being faithful in that. We agree to show up, to belong, to give, to be vulnerable, whether or not we're convinced that the other people are doing the same. We agree to give, to volunteer, to be involved, to get involved, whether or not we think other people are volunteering or giving whatever they should be, or whether or not we think this is the, the very thing that we should be investing in or whatever. This is what we're committed to. Covenant means that actually I'm entirely committed to you. Entirely committed to you. And I will pour myself out for you to see you become everything you can be. And where you fall short in doing that for me, I will go further. I won't shrink back. I won't look after my own interests. I will go further. I will cover your side as well as my side. This is what covenant community looks like this is why in acts we see these verses that we've looked at the last two weeks all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own they shared everything they had covenant 
allows that. Acts 2, all the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That is a community that is in covenant to one another. You see, as we've said before... The devil isn't afraid of a big church. He's afraid of a united one. We are going to take communion. Wherever you are, with whoever you're with. But we also take it together. We are going to take communion. Because Jesus said, wherever you do this, you remember me. Whenever you remember me, you do this. Jesus said, as we do this, it's a sign of our covenant with God and our covenant with each other. As we do this, we do this as community in covenant to one another. So we're going to be led through communion by the Chilvers and wherever you are, bring your whole self. Let's go to that video. So we're going to take communion, but before we do, it's really important that we remind ourselves of what communion is and why we take it. So Jesus had a meal with his disciples, the last meal that he had with them before he was crucified. And at that meal, he gave his disciples and us a way of remembering him and what he's done for us by dying on the cross. And he told his disciples that the bread symbolises his body and that the wine symbolises his blood. And the Bible also tells us that before we take communion, it's really important that we get our hearts right before God as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Everyone should look into his own heart before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. So... Heavenly Father God, we just want to, as we come before you, to celebrate communion. Lord, we just want to pray that you help us to align our hearts with your heart. Amen. 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 One Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty-three to twenty-four. On the night when Jesus was handed over to be killed, he took bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke the bread and said. This is my body. It is for you. Do this to remember me. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, who gave his life for us on the cross. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25-26 to 
In the same way, after they ate, Jesus took the cup. He said, This cup shows the new agreement from God to his people. This agreement begins with the blood of my death. When you drink this, do it to remember me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show others about the Lord's death until he comes. Dear God, with this bread and wine, we remember Jesus' death and we celebrate his risen life and his love for us. Amen. 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 Amen.